and then give it up for Dan. Hey, good morning, Heartland. How we doing? Want to play a game real fast? You guys like games? Sure. It's um, a fun one. It's one where I ask a question, I say a statement, you finish the statement. If you're watching online, hi, and um, be really quick in the chat because I think you know the answers to this. I um, grew up in the 90s, which means I had a lot of t-shirts that had motivational sayings on them. Did you have the t-shirts with the basketball is life, all that stuff? Um, I'm going to give you a phrase that was on a t-shirt, perhaps even the one that I wore. All of these phrases, you can purchase these t-shirts on Amazon, just a small plug for Amazon, small company, needs your business. But um, you can, these are real, real statements on, okay, well, you you get the drill. Um, Okay, here's the first one. No pain, no gain. Okay, anybody ever see this guy at the gym? You're like wearing this, we're like, we all get it, buddy, you're jacked. That's fine. All right. Uh, no guts, no. Okay, now this, this last one might be a little bit local to how I grew up. Um, no ketchup on a hot dog. That's right. You guys don't have this shirt? You should get this shirt and wear it all over Kansas City because people are confused. I need everybody in the room, raise your right hand for a second. All right, just kidding, just kidding. That's me and my Chicago loyalties being uh, obvious. Well, I, I, let me stay on the first two slogans. No guts, no glory, no pain, no gain. These are familiar slogans, axioms that are motivations to help us get through uncomfortable situations. Someone who's shy going on a first date maybe looks at themselves in the mirror and kind of pumps themselves up like, you got this, no guts, no glory. Um, maybe if you're preparing to be um, in a play or a musical in high school and right now spring musical time, you've, you, you've, you've realized you want to have that moment where you get the solo, where you've got the, the big part, and so you realize it's motivating you, like the pain of memorizing lines and choreography is going to help you get through it because there's a huge gain on the other side of it. Um, for decades, sports drinks, shoe companies have all promised that their products, with a little bit of your hard work, will help you achieve victory. I'm, t- I'm looking at you, Gatorade, all right? Like, like your thing plus hard work gets you victory. And this is a, a little bit of the paradigm that we all have within us. If you grew up in America, if you kind of lived here for a while, there's a little bit of this inside of you, that, that hard work is what separates defeat from victory. Maybe you grew up in a family where this was like a mantra of your family, like we work hard, we're going to get after it, because um, if you've experienced a little bit of defeat, you realize it takes a little bit more hard work, and a little bit of this plus a whole lot of that can get you a lot of this. Um, We get that. You know, the bumps in life are what you climb on to keep going forward. There's a problem with this paradigm, because while it may work for sports and while it may work for academics, while it'll work for your job... This will not work in the playing field of life between you and God. 
We've been, as a church, walking through this ancient letter written by the Apostle Peter, a guy who knew Jesus, spent time with Jesus for three years, walked the earth with Jesus, watched him be crucified, saw him, witnessed him after he resurrected from the dead, was commissioned by Jesus to go oversee churches and to help people who follow Jesus know him well. We've looked at one of these letters that he wrote to a church, churches, actually, who were scattered about the first century. And... Um, Peter has written to us his own sort of extreme. He's got two extremes that, that go with this. He's primarily talked to us about suffering. Nine times so far in four chapters, Peter has talked to us about sufferings, about the sufferings of Jesus, about the sufferings that it is to be human. And, and especially he's talked to us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a world that doesn't like Jesus and to suffer because you've given your life for Jesus. That's one of the poles, the extremes of Peter's writing here that we've seen throughout all of his writing. But, but I'm glad for the second part of Peter's writings because it's the counterbalance to suffering. Peter talks a lot about glory. For five uh, different moments in four chapters, he's given us all of this about glory, about what it means that one day God will make right all that is broken in the world, that one day Jesus will come and fix what is broken and you'll receive glory from God if you just hang in there. Between suffering and glory is a Christian experience. The followers of Jesus, we experience this. And there's this big question, if hard work fa uh, fails over here, what is it that gets us from suffering to glory in Jesus? Peter doesn't want to end his letter without making it crystal clear of how we get from suffering, from trials, from tragedy in this life to the future glory that is promised that you can bank on it that is to come. This is the, the big question. What works when hard work doesn't? And um, this is a paradox. It's a paradox of faith. That hard work is out of place between suffering and glory. Instead, Peter offers us a better way. Here's, here's what he um, tells us. He actually puts the main theme of his letter at the absolute end of the letter. I'll, we'll jump right to it. Here's what he says. The God of all grace who called you to this eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered, I just want to highlight, right, glory and suffering. After you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. What is it that gets us from suffering to glory? Everyone say it with me. He says, it's grace. Grace. Grace is what goes between suffering and glory. Grace is the power at work in our lives to help us move from this present pain to this future promise. Um, to prove this even more, uh, one verse later, this is verses 10 and 11, verse 12, uh, he writes this. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. Um, some of you are like, I haven't even had emails as long as what Peter has written. This is not brief. But in the ancient world, this is a brief letter. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you then testifying that here's his main point. This is the true grace of God. What's the true grace of God? All that I've written to you, the summation, the one word that I could just point to at the end of the day as you leave this letter, I want you to know this so clearly that what you've heard about suffering and glory is truly enabled because of God's grace to you. There is grace available to us. 
And that might surprise us if we've kind of hung in there with Peter on a week-by-week basis as we've gone through passage by passage. It seems like Peter's main subject is suffering or living a life that loves Jesus in a world that hates Jesus. And that is part of Peter's point, but he doesn't want us to let this book alone until we have explosions of grace. He wants to punctuate his book saying that between suffering and glory is grace. Now, what is grace? Um, many of you maybe didn't go to church when you are growing up, but you said grace at the dinner table, and you don't know why. That's okay. Uh, all of us have heard the song Amazing Grace, but you know it's not a country song about a girl named Grace, right? There, there is something about grace that is so familiar to us and yet so foreign at the same time. And Peter says if you don't understand this concept, you need, you're going to miss the entirety of the Jesus first life. I think grace, it's just put simply, it's kindness that you don't deserve. Kindness that you don't deserve. I've experienced grace the most in my life, both in marriage and as being a parent. I, um, a couple of years ago, bought a car. This is maybe the easiest way I can get to grace just for all of us. I bought a car. I bought a, a Toyota 4Runner. It was awesome. I loved it. One of my favorite cars I've ever driven. I lived in the sticks of Indiana and corn all over the place. And I would pull up to like a stop, stop sign, stop light. And as I was waiting to go my turn, I would often have these like daydreams about what it would be just to throw the thing into four-wheel drive and then just plow down corn. Don't you think that would be amazing? I didn't do it because, you know, farmers have shotguns, but that's okay. Uh, I loved this thing. It was just so fun to drive. And I walked to the car one day, and I noticed that my new-to-me car had etched in the paint of my driver's door a star, five-point star, that was then circled. And it didn't take me too long to realize this was done in the hand of a four-year-old. And luckily, I knew where one of those might be because I had a four-year-old. And I was so angry. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is not really a truck. This is my truck. I mean, come on. And I went and got my four-year-old. And I pulled him out there. And with all the pastoral loving kindness of a dad who's just been ticked, I said, did did you do this? And my four-year-old said, no. (laughs) You ever been so mad you couldn't even think? My four-year-old was so lucky that I was so upset. I said, get in the car. We've got to go. And I'm driving along. and It occurs to me. It's time for some hard, hard love in the Jacobson family. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make my four-year-old get a job. <laughs> and I'm going to make him pay the repair shop for my car. <laughs> I realized quickly that wasn't going to work out. I asked God, I said, God, what, what is going on here in my heart that I love this truck more than I love my kid? And realized, I just need to walk this out with, with my kid. I just need to let them know, you know. They're my child. I love them. There's nothing they could do in this world that would ever jeopardize that. So we got back from where we were going, and I one more time closed the door, and I said, look, look at this scratch. Tell me whether or not you did this. And my four-year-old, bless their heart, took their little hand, 
And as if they were remembering the act itself, traced the entire thing with their hand and said, Daddy, my kids at four called me Daddy. Daddy, I know you like your truck. I like it too. It looks to me exactly like my favorite TV show character, Blaze, from Blaze and the Monster Machines. But the problem is this car doesn't have a star. And I wanted you to have a star. So I put a star on your blaze. And I was like, stop being cute right now. <laughs> I said to him, I said, you know, I can't fix this. It's going to cost me a lot to make this normal. I said, but I love you. And I think you've learned your lesson. And I forgive you. Now, my four-year-old didn't have the words to say, will you forgive me? They didn't know that what they needed in that moment was grace. But in that moment, my willingness as the parent to absorb the cost for the sake of our relationship is the embodiment of unmerited kindness. Let me ask you a real question. What did my kid deserve in that moment? Grounded until they were 16. I mean, am I wrong? Dads, back me up. No. But... You know, you might be sitting here going, well, Dan, that's, that's just the cost of having kids. And I would say, yes. 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 That's probably how God also sees you and me. God sees you and me as his kids who have taken his world and his word and we've scratched them up. And God loves his word and he loves his world but he loves you a lot too. And so when we scratch up the things that belong to him, he doesn't make us pay, even though we should. He gives us forgiveness. How did God give us forgiveness? The church answer is Jesus, okay? Let me tell you. So God gave us a gift. His son, Jesus, came into this world, died on the cross. We're gonna celebrate and remember and honor this on Friday at 7 p.m. right out here. I'd love for you to come. It'll be a 45-minute service for us just to remember the fact that God hung on a cross for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He showed himself to us. He sent us his love and his message through his people so that we too could experience his forgiveness. And when you experience grace, the unmerited kindness of God that allows us to live life like Jesus, that brings us back into a relationship, that preserves our relationship, it changes everything about this life. Grace is the power that allows you and I to move forward in this life knowing who God is and what he wants from us. Grace is the most powerful characteristic of God that I've ever experienced. I think when you receive grace, something happens deep inside of you that is life-transforming. I think grace is the bullseye of what it means to live the Jesus-first life. For grace is the power of God that gives us a second chance. So Peter says, he says, I've written to you. Everything that I've said encapsulates just that this is the true grace of God. We didn't deserve this. We don't earn this. But this is what God has done for us. And this is what God wants us to live in, to stand in on our way through this life as we suffer on our way to glory. He says, um, grace is going to become so real to us someday. That it's like the, 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 the rock beneath your feet or the warmth of the sun that hits your skin on a warm day. Stand in God's grace. Peter uses this word stand multiple times as a posture that we receive God's grace in. 
I want to just back up to the beginning of uh, chapter 5. It's just a couple of verses. It's just literally two paragraphs. And walk us through these postures of grace that help us make it from suffering to glory. The first um, posture that uh, Peter talks to the church in their way to glory is actually talking to church leaders. He will talk to leaders and then new believers and then everyone as a whole. But he takes them in this order. He says to the elders among you. This word is leaders. It literally means pastors or overseers. The Greek is presbyteros. It's like the presbytery. You can do with that what you want. Those are for free today. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, which is kind of interesting because he's actually an apostle. Now, I I tried this in the first service and I failed miserably to explain the difference between an apostle and an elder. And all I could think of was, you know, in um, in like uh, Star Wars. Uh, Yeah, I don't know either. I'm out on some. I'm over the ledge on this one, guys. But um, you know, in Star Wars, there's these people that are like super powered. What are they called? Jedi's. Jedi's. Thank you. Jedi's. Obi Wan is a Jedi. Is that right? If you say no, I don't care. Okay. Uh, but he's a Jedi for all intents and purposes now. Luke Skywalker is a Jedi. And then there's all these like regular people in the rebellion, right? Maybe there's some leaders. But like Peter's like Luke Skywalker. You see why this didn't work in the first service, don't you? Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna bail on this. Peter is a super apostle, leading elders. With me? It's the greatest meme. You're welcome, YouTube. The point is that he humbles himself and actually relates as one of the leaders in the church of Jesus. Even though he's one who has seen and, and, and been with and been commissioned by Jesus, he talks to people who have never seen or been with or been commissioned by Jesus. He says, as a fellow elder, I witnessed Christ's suffering. I will also share in the glory. See the suffering and glory linked together again that's going to be revealed. Here's what he says to the leaders. Be shepherds to, everybody say this with me, God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them, not because you have to, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Don't pursue dishonest gain. That's actually a reference to like getting rich off of people. But be eager to serve. That's a reference to actually using your energy to help other people be lifted up. Don't lord over those who are entrusted, your authority over over those who are entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, um, again, when you don't know who that is in the church, Jesus is the safe bet. So the chief shepherd is? Yeah, when Jesus appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. One of the greatest um, accolades that you could receive in ancient Rome was a crown of leaves. And um, it just symbolized the fact that you would run a race faster than everybody else had. You had gotten first place. And this crown would last for about a week. And then just like the flowers that you brought home to your spouse or, 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 or put them on the kitchen table and you cut them from the garden, they last for a little while, they fade away. The crown in ancient Rome never really lasted. Peter says, if you do these things well, when Jesus comes, one of the rewards that he'll give you is a crown of glory that never fades away. Um, Peter doesn't use this word grace, but the implications of it are obvious. He says, as one who has received leading by the chief shepherd, we ought to take care of God's sheep, God's flock. I guess I have to say this in 2023 because we've got a lot of celebrities in churches and people become local famous because they're pastors and um, I guess it's just human nature for us, but 
no church belongs to any one pastor or leader. This happens, you know, from time to time. People come to Heartland or leave Heartland. We like to talk about the first part but not the second part. But listen, Johnson County's got a church hopping problem. And um, that's okay. I'll let you in on a secret. I live stream other churches too. I'm right there with you. And what happens is we start to identify works of God by the person who's leading the thing on the ground. So we say, oh, that's this person's church. And over here, that's that person's church. And over here, that's that person. Did you know that this person left from this place to go to that place? And now they're. And I think it dishonors the name of God that we put other people's name over the flock that God owns. Do you hear what I'm saying? One of the things that we as people who belong to Jesus must fight against is the temptation to put our leaders high enough on a pedestal where we name the thing after them. Which is why I love that I'm a part of a team lead here with Brad and Craig and I struggle because I don't want this to be a diatribe about team leadership and why it's a healthier model than a solo team, uh, solo pastor model. I believe that. That's why I'm here. But I don't want us to ever be like, well, Heartland, that's where they've got a team of people. It's so much better because they've got a team. The team becomes the thing. Whose is the church? God's. May we as leaders never ever usurp God's authority by trying to stamp our name on what God is doing. That's the first principle. This is God's flock. Because God entrusted to people to care for each other, we ought to have a mutual responsibility and love for one another. Why does Peter go after the leaders in such Away. You know, we might be tempted to think that leadership of the church in Peter's day was very similar to leadership in the church in our day. And actually, uh, no two ideas could be further from each other. And I want to just break this down for us briefly because um, to be in a church in uh, Bithynia or Asia Minor where Peter was writing to was a very different experience. There was no uh, light box in the atrium. We did, they didn't buy warehouses. The church existed in the shadows, The church existed underground. The church, if you wanted to gather together, you gathered in someone's home. The the vast majority of the people who followed Jesus in this day were not people of means. They were um, people who had given contracts to other people for financial benefit and as collateral, they put their own labor on the line so that they could get ahead in life. First Peter chapter two, Peter uses the word that we translate, I think inappropriately, slaves. These were people who, who were contracted out their labor. The other side of the church that was very prominent was women who didn't necessarily have all of their own expendable income or houses of their own, which means the minority, the very slim minority of people in the household of faith were people who had enough wealth to even host a gathering of 70, 80, 90, or 100 people to begin with. House churches had anywhere between 70 to 140 people existing in them. Now, I know that we think we've got big houses today in Johnson County and whatnot, but are you having 140 people over to your house? No. But there were people in the early church who could do this. And so they became hosts of the people of faith. They became leaders by virtue of the fact that they had the space I want you to imagine, just for a moment, look around this room. We all look like really nice people. There's, you know, dozens of people online. We're all coming to your house in an hour. How do you feel? You feel like some of you are elated, some of you are terrified. 
Because you're like, I really like that couch. I don't want it to get messed up. And I got enough food in the pantry from my family this week. I don't have enough for everybody else. And I just had the floors done. I don't need everybody traipsing their dirty feet all over them. I don't care how hospitable you feel. When you have 140 people coming and hanging out in your house, you're going to get a little bit cranky. People are going to scratch your stuff. They're going to break your stuff. And, and, and you're going to wonder, what did I do to deserve having to have all these people in my space? And Peter says, you deserved none of this. But you've been given a stewardship. You've been entrusted with the lives of people. This is God's family. That because he's blessed you, they're under your care. So he tells leaders, be gracious. He, he, he tells them, care for them. Don't just let them into your house, but watch over their souls out in the marketplace and in society. Make sure that you're caring for them. Don't charge them money to use your house. Don't um, do this because you've got the biggest property and without you, it's not going to work. Do this because God wants you to do this. Don't use your authority as a reason to increase your authority. But be examples to the flock. You know, Peter, Peter says, because you've received grace from God, show unmerited kindness to one another. In this way, you'll be an example to everyone who, of what God does for us. And your reward is going to be in heaven. It's not going to be temporary. It's going to be forever. Peter knew what he was talking about, not just because he himself was an elder who hosted people in his mother-in-law's house, but because at one point Peter needed Jesus' forgiveness just like all of us do. There was a night, you probably know the story, where Peter declared confidently that I will never leave you, Jesus. And Jesus turned and looked at Peter and said, Peter, you don't even know what you're talking about. In fact, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me even this very night. And Jesus is arrested. And he's put on trial. And during the trial, Peter is on the outskirts of the, uh, the room where it's happening. And pe people keep coming up to him asking for intel about this guy, Jesus, who's on trial. And they come up to him three different times and say, don't you, we know you, you were with Jesus. And three times he says, no, I, I don't even know the guy. Leave me alone. The third time, a rooster crows. On the other side of the resurrection, Jesus comes to his disciples, shows up to them. He's alive. It's, it's blowing their mind, and he sits and he has a meal with them. The end of John, John chapter 21, records this conversation between Jesus and Peter. Jesus looks at Peter, knowing the shame that existed in Peter's heart because he had denied Jesus just like Jesus said he would, despite saying proudly, I never will. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, I would say the phrase sheepishly, but that's a really great pun that probably go over everybody's head. Sheepishly says, you know, Lord, I do. Jesus says three times, feed my sheep. In this moment of rec restoration, Jesus is not giving Peter what he deserves. What Peter deserves is to be cut off from the gang. You're disloyal. You're self-motivated. You're protecting yourself. Instead, Jesus looks at Peter and says, now do you see that I came for you to have gracious relationships with each other, 
to have gracious relationships with me and gracious relationships with the Father. And so Peter restores, is restored and, and given a ministry. What is he to do? He is literally to be a shepherd, to, to give second chances that Jesus offers to anyone, even fishermen like him. So he says to all of those who lead, we don't have any goodness of our own to lead people. We just lead them to Jesus. We lead them like Jesus. And we do so because we ourselves are being led by Jesus. I said already, but the, the phrase that we see about grace is that grace is what allows us to have relationships in the first place. If you are a leader of people who wants to lead others towards Jesus, grace is the word that must reign supreme over every other word in our vocabulary. Not one of us deserves to point people to Jesus, but we're given an opportunity because God is gracious. And then he turns it and he says, um, in the same way, I love that Peter is consistent all throughout his letter. He says one thing to one group of people and then he says, but also this applies to you guys over here. And so in the same way, you, and then also it applies to you all over here. And he does this here. The leaders act graciously. And in the same way, you who are younger, um, this is not about, thankfully for me, this is not about how long you've lived on this earth. This word younger is actually in Greek the word new. You who are newer, newer to what? Newer to faith. Those of you who have not followed Jesus for a long time, you just discovered who Jesus is, you ought to be submitting yourselves to your elders. And then he says to all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's a verse that a lot, a lot of us have thought about in the midst of perhaps anxious thoughts. But Peter wants us to know that the church itself has anxiety. That we together are called to give all of our worries to God knowing that he himself is our chief shepherd. Humility. It's, um, it takes humility to be led by another person. Gracious relationships are based upon humility. I love that Peter points back to other parts of scripture that says, God actively works against those who think that they are something apart from him. But for those who have a clear picture of their need for grace, God will show favor. What happens when God's people graciously lead and serve and follow one another? We display an uncommon unity, an undivided church, and we become an unanxious presence. I don't know about you, but the words that I wish that could be uttered from outsiders looking in at Harland are, wow, that church is uncommonly united by God's grace. And wow, that church is not divided. Wow. For whatever reason, every other person in the world is freaking out right now, but that church is not anxious about anything. I wonder what the world would think about us if we lived this out. If we graciously held selfish leaders accountable, and if we directed our fear upward to God in prayer instead of venting it out in the world. I think it takes grace to look at another person and say, I know you're not Jesus, but together we're on a mission to live like, we, like he did, so can we walk together? Can you show me what the Jesus life is like? Which means wherever you are in the church family, whether you're called a pastor or not, we need grace from 
and for one another. Peter says, we've got that grace. We have the God of all grace. Not only that, Peter reminds us we have grace to stand united with one another, but also we have grace to stand against our enemy. He gives us the call to gracious resistance. God's grace is a unifier. It's also a defender. This gets kind of tricky. Watch where he goes. He says um, this, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. This is the graciousness of God. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. In Western society, we're not just suspicious of human authority. We're skeptical of anything that is talked about in the supernatural world. But listen, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, that was not a metaphor. Jesus actually battled the real devil. And Peter believed Jesus, when at the Last Supper, Jesus said to all of his disciples that Satan had asked to sift them like wheat. That means just like, a, like LeBron James throwing the chalk up before the game, just to whew, let it go in the air and let the wind blow it along. Satan has asked that he could just toss you here and there. And sure enough, in the moment of temptation, Peter denied Jesus. The enemy laid a trap and Peter walked into it. He himself felt devoured. Peter knew firsthand the schemes of the one who is at work destroying the works of God. And see, this is the principle. Wherever grace reigns, there is an enemy roaring against it. But because Jesus' victory and grace, it, it gives, gives us new power and new life, the enemy can be loud, but it is defeatable. Peter calls this enemy, the devil, a roaring lion, a roaring lion. And that's also a descriptor of Jesus, but, but this lion that he's talking about is hungry and looking for someone to devour, not someone to protect. Uh, the other day I found out that just south on uh, 69 here uh, nearby uh, Overland Park is a cat sanctuary. Do you know about this place? No one knows about it. Okay, you've, you've seen Tiger King? Like 20 minutes away from here, there's a, there's a dude who's got some cats. And I found out about it last Saturday. I almost took my kids to go see it. And I, I knew that one of the Heartland families lived nearby. And I said, hey, do you guys know anything about this, like the, this cat sanctuary that's like down 69, I think like in, in Lewisburg. And um, this family goes, oh, yeah, we go there all the time. And, and the mom goes, in fact, our daughter almost got mauled by a, a lion last week. And that really caught my attention, and I thought to myself, I'm not going there. <laughs> Being from, you know, just starting to become a, a Kansas City, and I was like, well, tell me more about this sanctuary. Is it it's apparently safe because your daughter's still here? And the dad said, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> he goes, it's just a big enclosure. It's about the size of Heartland. And um, the lions, and there's some tigers, and there's some other things that are just They've been rescued, and they're just try, trying to keep these things alive. And they're just ranging. They're just rolling. And this one lion a couple weeks ago saw my daughter from a distance, and she was walking, and the lion picked her up in the corner of his eye and started running towards her, and its mane started going. He was like, it was so majestic. 
the wife said, yeah, our daughter froze and she almost became a snack. He said, that lion got all the way up to the edge of the fence and stopped. And the dad said, I don't know why. It's just a chain link fence. I don't even know if it's attached to the poles. And I said to them, thank you very much. That story will preach next week when I have to. Because we have an enemy that's roaring like a lion, seeking to devour something. But here's the deal. Don't miss it. God's grace is a protection for those of us who stand firm in faith, knowing that Jesus has overcome our enemy. God's grace has put a barrier between us and this lion. And we look at him and we go, it's just a chain link fence. I don't even know if it's attached. But God in his grace has given us power to survive the suffering so that what God has us walking through today in trials that are supposed to test our faith to show us that we we actually truly know him and love him, the trial and the suffering that's so hard for us to stand up under, if we allow God to do his work in the trial and we resist the enemy's attacks to flee from God in the midst of it and to flee from what we know to be true, God promises to preserve us in the midst of the trial so that our sufferings lead us to glory by his grace. We have grace to resist the enemy. And this is true of you. I don't know, we all have this, I have this, we all have these moments in our life where the enemy, the cunning enemy, will lay a trap for you on the other side of the fence. He's so good that he'll even get you to get inside the cage with him. Peter says, don't, all all you gotta do is resist. How? How do you resist the enemy? Well, this is where the picture of us being sheep is really helpful. I'm not a shepherd. Every time I say this, there's a shepherd in the room who's raised sheep, and I'm happy to meet you later. But what I know about shepherding is that when the herd is together, when the flock is together, a lion will not attack. And if this is not one of the greatest opportunities for us as a people of God to lean in together in gracious relationships, to stay close to one another, to say, God, I need to be around other people in my lives who I can pray with and I can rehearse the gospel with and I can be reminded of who Jesus is so that I don't get picked off in isolation. So many of us think that I, you know, I'm done with organized religion. I'm done with these people, these hypocrites, all these you know, false Jesus false. And so I'm just going to go worship Jesus on my own. I'm just going to be in my own little house. I'll, I'll, I'll live stream on my own. I never am around other people. And as what, one of your shepherds, I just want to call that out to say, that's dangerous. Even, even in those moments where I'm tempted to withdraw or to isolate, I know that the best thing for me to do is to push in. Because God in his shepherding of us has safety in his flock. So he gives us grace to resist. Here's the last thing. Thanks for your patience. Um, We'll we'll be out of here in just a second. Peter pushes us to the final, final exhortation. He gives us gracious rewards. One of the postures, Johnny had us do this today, is just the posture is this, to stand and to put our hands open before God. Look at what he says. He says, I've already read it to you. The God of all grace. I need a little bit of grace today, God. And God says, I've got all of it. The God of all grace. I put my hands open. He says, I've got more than your hands can hold. Just give me what you're walking through. He, He called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you suffered for a little while. He will himself restore you. That's the first gift. He will make you strong. That's the second gift. He will make you firm. That's the third gift. He will make you steadfast. That's the fourth gift. Then glory. The grace that Jesus gives to us will be seen 
in a perfect restoration of who we are, like a, a ripped garment going back to the person who made it in the first place to be mended. God promises to take our lives and to put us back together, which tells me that though I feel weak today, though this body of mine is wasting away, I have hope. I don't live today in the present tense of my struggle. I live in the future tense of this victory, that the God of grace will bring me into glory to restore me, to strengthen me, to put back what this world has broken up in my life, to, to heal me. Put that back on there. I'm not done with it. But what's the real gift of grace? The real gift of grace is not that your life will be made better. In glory, the real gift of grace is not that you'll be stronger. And I've never been a strong dude. I'm really looking forward to benching 600 pounds. Test me in glory. Let's see if we can have a little competition. I, I love that I'll be steadfast because I, so many days I don't feel steadfast, enduring, able to stay the course. The real grace that God gives us is none, none of what he does for me. It's just simply this here. That in glory, the best thing we get is God himself. That in glory, we have the picture of the Father who's so personal to us that he takes his hands and he says, I will strengthen you. I will heal you. I'm right here with you. You're mine. I'm present. Can you feel me? I want to have you stand to your feet as we close. What do we do with 1 Peter? What does Peter mean when he says that this is the true grace of God? Stand in it. What we do is we stand in his grace. <laughs> we remember the fact that we don't have what it takes. Maybe the best phrase I could give us all for this entire book is simply not no pain, no gain, but simply his pain, our gain. This is grace, that Jesus has done the work that you and I can't do. This is a little bit morbid, I guess, if you take the phrase, no guts, no glory, and put it on Jesus, that his guts become our glory. But, but his sacrifice for us is our freedom. His victory over sin is our forgiveness and our promise. What does God expect from us as we walk through the trials of this life is simply to remember that you have power and access to the one who can heal and will forever. He's right here with you, no matter what you're facing. You can face it today and have hope for tomorrow. And Peter says, to him who has power forever and ever. Amen. Hey, we love you so much. Come next week early because it's an Easter unlike any other. We'll see you next week.